dressed to impress the Vaseline Gannet, you tender Benjamins. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. This episode is the sixth year anniversary of this podcast. I've been making this podcast every single week for six years. And what that means for me is, for six years solid, I've been able to earn a living doing what I absolutely love and adore. Before this podcast, I'd spent 10 years in the rubber bandits, trying to make it on television, radio and in music, operating very much within the space of traditional media. And the problem with that is, you're not creating to make the best piece of work. You're not creating to express yourself. You're creating to impress a small amount of commissioners in the hopes that they'll give you a job. And you get a commission and you just take it. You're lucky to get one or two commissions a year and then you have to live off that with complete uncertainty and no way to financially plan or plan anything about your fucking life. And it's a soul-crushing and inefficient way to be an artist and it's a, it's a terrible model for creative self-expression. If you want to fund artists, you have to fund artists to fail. You gotta fund artists like, like you'd fund a scientist. You fund an artist to give them space to experiment and create and to try things. If you do that, you'll get occasional greatness. TV, radio and music industry doesn't do that. They fund artists with the caveat that the work must be popular to draw in advertisers. And under those conditions, what you get is consistent mediocrity. So for six years, I've been completely out of that system. I don't have to think about commissioners. I I don't even, they don't enter my fucking head. Instead, each week, I get to deliver the best version of myself to you. I get to write like I'm four years of age playing with Lego. Instead of thinking about what I want to make, I'm exploring a feeling of curiosity, using creativity. And from that, I've got a fucking body of work that I'm unbelievably proud of. And I get to experience a sense of meaning and purpose and place in the world. And we've got 1.2 million regular listeners now after six years. 1.2 million people or thereabouts tune into this podcast regularly all around the world and I I could not have done that on television, radio, just could not have done it because some commissioner would have come in and fucked it up. Instead of trusting the process, they'd have come in with anxiety and tried to suggest or force an outcome and then what would this podcast be? Brian McFadden would be my co-presenter and each week we're talking about what gives us the ick. That's what this podcast would be. No disrespect to Brian McFadden. Love the the podcast, Blind Boy. Love the stuff you're doing about the podcast you did last week about medieval medieval manuscripts. Can you do do something about the ick? Chicken fella rolls. (laughs) Uno mas. Chicken fella rolls. Can you do something like that? Can we get brands interested? I want smash burgers and IPAs when it's a podcast. I want to listen to it with my dick. (laughs) (laughs) That's what commissioners sound like. (laughs) That's what commissioners sound like. They sound like fucking car salesmen, except they're not selling you a car, they're trying to ruin your career. Do you know how TV gets made? Like, literally, do you know how television shows get made? And I know this because I've been in these fucking rooms. A lot of people who are really winging it They're not creative people. They're people who are thrown in at the deep end and they're winging it. 
they all go into an office. There's a whiteboard. Someone else prints out photographs of the top 10 most popular TV shows of the past year. Then they stick all the photographs of the popular TV shows on the mood board and they try to come up with a new TV show idea that's made up of bits of other popular shows. And that's how television is made. Now that is not creativity. That's a fear-based approach where you treat your audience like fucking idiots with the aim of consistent mediocrity. And then they present that to a commissioner. Commissioner is very rarely a creative person. They're kind of like like a nightclub manager who's found themselves in a creative job. And then the commissioner says, I'm really seeing it, guys. I'm seeing the vision, but we got to shake things up here. We got to bring in the young creatives. Bring in the young creatives. So then the idea, which which is made up of all bits of other successful TV shows, it, it's presented to a bunch of young creatives. And, and they're not young creatives. I've met these people. I've had conversations with them. They're people in their early 20s from very wealthy families who are popular and good looking and dress really well. And these are brought in as like experts of what's good. They give feedback on the ideas, give some suggestions. This is represented to the TV commissioner and, and then it's made into TV. And I've been at the receiving end of these fucking focus groups. I remember about 2011, I had an idea for a sitcom. It was basically the town but set in modern limerick the town is like an epic from irish mythology so i wanted to remake the town but set in limerick and it was starring the rubber bandits so this idea was given to this broadcaster in ireland and it was brought to the internal ideas process and the young creatives and the notes came back and the young creatives couldn't they couldn't handle the fact that we were wearing plastic bags in our heads so Instead of it being about the town, it was now a TV show where the rubber bandits were burn victims and the comedy show was about how we wore plastic bags in our heads to hide the scarring on our faces from because we were in a, a car fire. And it wasn't about the town anymore. It was just a comedy about two lads in Limerick who robbed cars and set them on fire. Because Limerick's full of scumbags. And, and I just said, I said, fuck off. I said fuck off. Luckily I'm no longer involved in that process anymore because I'm 100% fully independent and I want to thank all of you who are listening to this podcast and sharing it with people and supporting me through Patreon. Thank you so much to every single one of you for making this possible because I did not think that this podcast would be lasting six years. I really didn't think that and I'm tremendously excited to just keep going to keep going and keep making these podcasts and exploring my curiosity and having crack. So as a special treat, I have an absolutely magnificent guest this week. I have the legendary Naomi Klein. She's an author, social activist, filmmaker. She's written hugely important books like No Logo, The Shock Doctrine and On Fire about climate crisis, which she wrote a couple of years back. Naomi Klein uses pretty rigorous research to present scathing arguments against capitalism and neoliberal policies and she does it all in a way that's very democratic that's very accessible her books are very popular they can be picked up by anybody she's changed a lot of people's minds and made people think about systems of power in the world people who might not have thought about this stuff before now Naomi's most recent book 
that just came out is called Doppelganger. And it's a bit of a different Naomi Klein book. See, one of the strange things about Naomi Klein is there's another Naomi, Naomi Wolf. Now, Naomi Wolf was at one point a fairly respected feminist writer. But over the past decade, Naomi Wolf descended so far into conspiracy theory that her views no longer appear rational or evidence-based. And this led to a huge loss of respect and credibility and quite a lot of mockery and humiliation for Naomi Wolf. But the thing is, people kept confusing Naomi Klein and Naomi Wolf. They're both women, they're both Jewish women. They both became famous off the back of giant blockbuster books that were like unexpected successes, books that were social critiques. So for a lot of people, the two Naomi's were interchangeable. And whenever Naomi Wolf would tweet something that's kind of conspiracy theory-ish, Naomi Klein would end up getting the backlash and it had real impact on her life. So Naomi Klein's most recent book, Doppelganger, she explores her doppelganger, the other Naomi. She explores the conspiracy world, conspiracy theory world that Naomi Wolf operates in. Effectively, this book is an investigation into conspiracy theories and people who believe conspiracy theories. So me and Naomi sat down and had a chat about conspiracy theories and it was wonderful crack. It was a fascinating chat. Now, a few of you might be wondering why we don't speak about the situation in Palestine and Israel. The reason is, is that we recorded this in late September. I spoke about Palestine and Israel in last week's podcast, if you'd like to go back and get a listen to that. But here you go. Here's the wonderful chat I had with Naomi Klein for the 60 year anniversary about conspiracy theories. And check out her book Doppelganger, which is available at the moment. Naomi Klein, thank you so much for taking the time out to have a little chat with me. I'm delighted to. How long are you going to be in Ireland for? Just a couple of days. Oh, fantastic. So Naomi, I've been reading your books for years. I adored No Logo when it came out. Shock Doctrine was really important to me. And I'm really excited to be reading Doppelganger because I want to hear your take on conspiracy theories. Like, I remember a time when conspiracy theory wasn't this dirty word. Like, the golden age of the X-Files when conspiracy theory meant I'm interested in, like, Bigfoot and UFOs. Like, harmless, fun stuff. And then something flipped around maybe 2012, 2013. The type of things that conspiracy theorists were interested in sounded to me almost close to the stuff that you'd been writing about in The Shock Doctrine or even the stuff that Noam Chomsky speaks about. Conspiracy theories started to sound almost like critiques of capitalism, but with this strange right-wing twist to them. Conspiracy theorists stopped being like nerds who were interested in Bigfoot, and all of a sudden they became a little mm-hmm. bit nazi mm-hmm. Like, how did this happen? Yeah, I, definitely. They're, they're sort of, th- you know, the way I put it in the book is that, is that it is, it sounds like us, but through mm-hmm. a warped mirror. Um, and, and it isn't the same if you listen closely, um, because the thing about most of the conspiracy theories that I've come across is it's, it's, it, it's the opposite of a, of what I try to do and what, what I think Noam Chomsky does and, you know, what most left, um, theorists do, which is have a critique of a system. 
yes, um, and have an understanding of what the system is designed to do. And and our analysis is not what you learn at school, right? I mean, mm-hmm. at school we learn that capitalism is you know sunshine and rainbows and meritocracies and the best possible system, and yeah. um, you know you don't learn about its need for an underclass and dispossession and the consistent stratification of wealth in the history of capitalism yeah. and then counter pow- counter pressures that for you know relatively brief periods of time win some redistribution gains but you know it's built into the system yeah. so this is why you know the, the book though though it begins with my own doppelganger confusion it is much more broadly about about more collective forms of doppelganging, including the way that right-wing conspiracy culture forms a kind of doppelganger of these left theories, right? Yeah. Because they don't have a systemic critique. They they take the very real anger and suspicion um, at elite power, yeah. and then they say, well, it's it's five guys in a room somewhere, or it's the Jews, or um, or you know the Jews and the Chinese, or wh- wh- yeah. you know whoever the enemy of the day is, um, and it's actually a system protecting uh, critique because because the conclusion of it being just this small group of of people who are polluting the system is that you can just get those people and then all will be well. And this has a really sinister history. It's simple. It's simple and it's dangerous. It's simple and dangerous. You, you know, Hitler and the Nazis talked about Jewish capitalism being yeah. the problem, um, literally. I mean, as if there's some special kind of, of capitalism that is Jewish and that and, and, and the conclusion of that was get rid of the Jews and then you get your good capitalism back. Mm-hmm. You get your good, healthy capitalism back. Um, so yeah, they might sound like us, but I don't really think that we have that much in common. Um, but they're filling they're filling a vacuum. Uh, mm. You know, I think that their success, I can't help seeing partially as our failure in the sense that I think they're filling a political vacuum. And, and I think we should be working harder to fill it with real critiques of this same system. So my experience on, on the ground, speaking to people I know, who, especially around COVID, became radicalized towards conspiracy theories. The anger that I see from these people is like, as you mentioned, it it's like a failure from the left. When I speak to people I know who would say they get the conspiracy theories from, from Facebook, they started off maybe questioning some narratives around COVID, then they went deeper and deeper, then they started to become a little bit anti-Semitic, now they don't like refugees. They've gone down the rabbit hole, but also they've got an anger about leftists. They feel like leftists are talking down to them all the time. You know, like, fuck you with your big smart words. I know the truth. I know I do my own research. But there's also an anger, a feeling towards leftists that maybe leftists are more educated and that they're snide and passive aggressive and that they talk down to them. And I see a lot of emotion and anger around that specifically. I think there is, but I think there's also um, that anger at leftists is is generated. Um, it's part of the program. Uh, you know, I think that anyone who's paid attention they call it cultural Marxism. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 one of the hated groups, right? Um, and so, you know, it may begin with an anti big pharma or big tech 
suspicion or 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 critique which which mm-hmm. is which is rooted in real experience uh, of of these industries yeah but then you know in, in in my book i i i fall down the rabbit hole with my doppelganger and spend a lot of time listening yeah. to some of the most um powerful figures in this world like people we've been in um and and tucker carlson and yeah. i mean this is just in the north american context i'm sure you have you know your influencers here so steve bannon and, and tucker yeah. carlson who you mentioned there yeah. they their videos would get shared a lot in irish conspiracy spaces but their messaging then would kind of sets the tone for what people who i know would be talking about yeah and i mean i think there every, everyone also has their local figures mm-hmm. um but 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 what you see is it pivots very quickly away from. I mean, they they don't have a campaign against Pfizer. Mm-hmm. They have a campaign against trans kids. They yeah. have a campaign against immigrants. Yes. Um. So it harnesses the. the I think you know. I I say that conspiracy theorists get get facts wrong, but the feelings right. So they start with a real yeah. feeling that mm-hmm. that is legitimate, and then they pivot it to scapegoats and, and so I think you know we we can think. I mean, here in Ireland, there were there was just a recent. Um, sort of coming together of some of these forces outside the doll that yeah. you know I, I, some of the reports I saw were you know that was it was anti-immigrant it was transphobic there were the same talking points you'd expect to see from a, a similar rally in America or in Canada right and these talking points are they're quite new to us in Ireland right but we often forget that one of the one of the groups on their lists are are leftists yeah. uh, are Marxists and. I'm not sure how organic that is. I, th- I think it's quite it's it's pretty top down mm-hmm. the, the the focus on the uh, on the cultural left. Like I don't think people are waking up in the morning going, "I hate cultural Marxists." You know, yeah. it's kind of like critical race theory. Like this is a kind of a messaging campaign. Yes, that has come from people who have, you know, done their market research. I suppose about what sort of sound, but but in the sense that it sounds snobby, it sounds elite. Yes, for sure. I think you're right. And something I'd love to ask you about too, Naomi, is like, so I'm fascinated with conspiracy in the way that you might be. Like, I'll read about things that the CIA have done and I can see evidence for, like, this thing that was once conspiracy theory now appears to be fact because I'm literally looking at the documents where they admit it. Same with stuff to do with the British military in the north of Ireland. There's a lot of stuff out, out there around conspiracy and MI5 and I'm really fascinated about this stuff and I read about it a lot and I'm forever trying to be careful of the line. The line of wh- when does this tip into me being crazy? You know what I mean? Like crazy is the wrong word. Yeah, I mean, I try not to use the word crazy. Me um, too. Yeah. Me too. Because that's me being an elitist yeah. prick. I don't want to call these people crazy because to do so isn't compassionate. Yeah. And I mean, first of all, I try to be really careful to not even to not call them conspiracy theorists. Sometimes I slip up wow. just out of tiredness. So what's your preferred term? I call them conspiracy influencers, ah. and I call it conspiracy culture. Okay. Um, by which, and the reason I do that is for a couple of reasons. One, you know, I think it's not fair to theorists mm-hmm. to call them theorists because they're just jumping around. There's an economic, like when we're looking at the big players who are really pushing this, yeah. uh, there's an economic reason why they are. And this is what uh, has changed with the attention economy. Okay. Is that, you know, I've done a lot of reporting during times of crisis um, after 
hurricanes and tsunamis and military invasions. And whenever things are very uncertain, and especially when there's a lot of profiteering going on and people are being taken advantage of, which is what my book, The Shock Doctrine, was all about, people are going to try to make sense of that. And and they might even um, conclude that there's so many there's there's so so many people taking advantage of a, of a disaster that maybe they caused it in the first place, right? Okay. So I was when I was in um, uh, Sri Lanka after the Asian tsunami, um, when there was this huge land grab going on, where where you know small farmers and fishing people were losing their land to big real estate developers, a lot of people started speculating that maybe the American military had detonated an underwater weapon and it had caused the tsunami. Now yeah. that is, I don't think that's true. If it is true, I've never seen any evidence of it. And that's that that's I think the key point. Is like how do we know it what's a conspiracy like like what sort of conspiracy theory should we pay attention to and what should we not? Yeah. It's not is it crazy? Is it not crazy? It's is it is there evidence? Is it proven or not? Mm-hmm. And and so that's why I call them influencers. They're floating around wherever the heat is online, wherever the clicks are, wherever the views are. And the the claims, the conspiratorial claims often wildly contradict one another, right? So one minute COVID is a bioweapon that has been cooked up in a lab by the Chinese government in order to depopulate the West. Yeah. And then the next minute, while saving the Jews and the Chinese, um, and then the next minute, it's why are you even wearing a mask and definitely don't get vaccinated because it's the vaccine that's a bioweapon. And it's kind of like, you should choose, you know, like if it's a bioweapon, we should probably try not to contract it, you know? Um, yeah. So that's where I think the attention economy is important. So if we take the pandemic there and you have conspiracy influencers saying, well, if Big Pharma made the vaccine and they profited from it so massively, then they must also have made the virus. And when I hear these arguments, I would love for those people to read like your book, The Shock Doctrine, which is about how under neoliberalism, certain policies have risen to dominance because of a a deliberate strategy of exploiting crises and not just policies. When something happens like a recession, which affects most people, the very wealthy can actually earn money from that. If everyone loses their house, then houses are cheap and rich people can buy them. Like, have you read a book, Naomi, called Blood on the Streets? No. Wow. Okay. Have you heard of Jacob Rees-Mogg? Yeah. He's a conservative politician, conservative politician in England. Mm -hmm. So his dad, his dad wrote this book called Blood on the Streets in about 1987. Oh, I have heard of this. Yes. It's like a manual. It's a manual for wealthy people that if there is a recession, here is the manual of how you can make yeah. money from a recession if you're wealthy. And when I read it, I immediately thought of the shock doctrine. I was like, oh, there it is. Yeah. There it is. They've written it down. There's the manual. Naomi was well, right. And the shock doctrine is full of examples of right-wing politicians admitting that this is a strategy. But, mm. you know, when I was writing that book, um, you know, I, 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 I was very clear that I think just because... I mean, I, I see these guys as as kind of preppers in mm. the sense that they know that this is a system that is very volatile. Yeah. There are regular shocks. The economy crashes. There are natural disasters, more of them because they're doing nothing about climate change and making it worse. Yes. And on and on. So all you need to do is have your, you know, I quote Milton Friedman in, in, in The Shock Doctrine who says that their goal is to have the ideas ready for when the politically impossible becomes politically inevitable. And mm-hmm. he says only a crisis real or perceived produces real change. So they have their sort of 
right-wing deregulation, privatization, austerity, wish list ready for whenever the shock hits. So they don't have to cook it up. There doesn't have to be a conspiracy to create the shock so that they can exploit it. But there is a a conspiracy to exploit it. Um, You know, like in the shock doctrine, I have minutes from a meeting that took place um, at one of these big uh, uh, right-wing foundations in Washington, the Heritage, Heritage Foundation, two weeks after Hurricane Katrina drowned New Orleans, the city was still partially underwater, and they made a wish list of what they called the 32 free market solutions to Hurricane Katrina and and high gas prices. And it was just, you know, privatize the school system, drill for oil in Alaska. But the thing is, is like they didn't cause that disaster unless you count the, the all of the oil that they that, that it's burned. Um, they just were ready. They're always ready. And so this is, you know, I have a section of the book called The Conspiracy is Capitalism, and it talks about how some conspiracies are we- are real, but the difference between a conspiracy just to use a disaster to enrich your industry, enrich yourself, mm. it uh, and the kinds of conspiracies that surge in what I'm calling conspiracy culture is, yes. you know, they're talking about you know, an elite plot to 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 kidnap children and drain them of adrenochrome. Yeah. Um, you know, th- these are kind of like Hollywood inspired plots, and you know, I can see why they're appealing. I mean, they're strange and weird, and they're entertaining. Entertaining, yes. Like I often find Naomi with with conspiracy theories. When I see them, I go, "Wow, this is unbelievably entertaining. This isn't. This is a great story." And I want a part of me wants to believe conspiracy theories because they're so fun. And then the critical part of my brain kicks in and says, hold on a minute here, buddy. Like, this is reality. It's, it's not a TV show. Like, do you ever see a, a like a crossover, a parallel between conspiracy theories and mythology, folklore, storytelling? Well, definitely storytelling. Um so many of the people who are kind of stars in this world come from Hollywood and reality television. I think they're, okay. you know, they're skilled mass market storytellers. Yeah. You know, Steve Bannon, yes. Russell Brand, um, yeah. uh, Donald Trump. You know, he was a reality television star. Andrew Tate. Yeah. Um, you know, I think they're people who really have the kind of story structure down. Um, okay. You know, leave people hanging. You know, s- sprinkle some breadcrumbs. I'm trying to think of of whether it follows a kind of ancient mythology structure. What do you think? Well, like you mentioned adrenochrome there, and that goes back a long time. Mm. Like you might know a bit more about this than me, but I understand adrenochrome. To me, that's an anti-Semitic trope that's several hundred years old. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the oldest one. (laughs) Yeah. The conspiracy of eating human babies to get some type of secret hidden power. That's medieval anti-Semitism. No, I think think that that you're right about that one for sure. That, you know, I wouldn't call it ancient. Like, I mean, when when you say ancient mythology, I'm thinking about your work on Greek mythology. But absolutely, this is is an old story. and, And the story, it goes back to early Christianity and the claim that, Jews who didn't convert to Christianity were stealing Christian babies and draining yeah. their blood for rituals, and yeah. so QAnon is really just a just a new remix on that old on that old old tune. Let's take a little pause from that chat now, so that I can have the ocarina pause. I don't have an ocarina. What have I got this week? I don't have any books either. I've got Turkish cologne. 
I've got Turkish cologne that I bought in a barber's that smells of wonderful lemon. So I'm going to spray some Turkish cologne and then you're going to hear an advert for something. Oh, I don't want to get it into my eyes. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. That is magnificent. The whole, the whole area around me now smells like the mist of lemons. Not real lemons, like a lemon's memory. Too much lemon now, I'm inundated with lemon. I'm after inundating myself with the scent of lemon, that's too much. Fuck me. Alright, that was the lemon in the... In, 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 now it's all over the fucking mic, man. The, the mic is wet with lemon. That was the lemon in the... <laughs> The lemon in inundation pause. <laughs> I inundated myself with the scent of lemon. And you heard an advert for some shit. Maybe it didn't, I don't know. Look, support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. If this podcast brings you joy, solace, distraction, entertainment, well, please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. Because this is my full-time job. It's how I rent my office. It's how I pay my bills. It's how I exist. And it's how I have the space and time to do what I do to make this podcast. But if you can't afford that, don't worry about it. You can listen for free. You can listen for free. Because the person who is paying is paying for you to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast and I get to earn a living. It's a wonderful model based on kindness and soundness. Also, it means I am not beholden to advertisers. No advertiser can come in here, tell me who to have as a guest on, tell me what to talk about, or influence the content in any way. My new book of short stories, Topographia Hibernica, which I cannot wait to share with you, is out in Ireland on the 9th of November, and in the UK on the 19th of November. You can pre-order it now. Go to my Instagram, Blind by Boat Club, and I have a little link there at the top of my page for pre-ordering. I have a fantastic book slash podcast tour live tour that I'm doing in November London, Manchester and Edinburgh are sold out there's still tickets available for Liverpool and Coventry on the 14th and 16th of November respectively only a few tickets left Belfast that's selling out real quick on the 18th and then Vicker Street on the 19th come along to Vicker Street in Dublin on the 19th because that's just about to go that's my Irish book launch slash live podcast and that's a Sunday night 
I always have my Vicar Street gigs on queer nights. I never do Friday or Saturday. I always do a weekday night or a Sunday because you can treat it like the theatre. And also I don't want people, I don't want drunk people in the audience. So doing it on a weeknight or a Sunday is the best way to get those results. My Vicar Street Live podcasts are probably my favourite gigs. I do a few a year. And you can have wonderful Sunday night crack even if you have a hangover. Just come along to the gig and you'll be home in bed ready for work the next day with no headaches. Just a wonderful gorgeous night. February, I'm gigging in Oslo. Come along to the gig in Oslo, look it up online. Berlin, one gig is sold out, I'm adding a second night. Dog bless. Back to my chat with Naomi Klein, where we speak about mythology, folklore and conspiracy theories now. Well, one of the reasons I was bringing up mythology and folklore is your use of the term mirror world in the book Doppelganger. When you speak about Naomi Wolf, your doppelganger, you say that she lives... Like because of her conspiracy theory beliefs, yeah. she lives in a mirror world. And it reminded me of Irish mythology because in Irish mythology, we have a mirror world. This world that's like parallel to our world. And in Irish mythology, in the mirror world, that's where, you know, people shape shift into animals or fairies. And a lot of modern conspiracy theory, it, it reminds me of folklore. It reminds me of folklore. And in the past, people who really believed in Irish folklore, it actually resulted in genuine moral panics. And sometimes people were hurt and killed because of beliefs within folklore. Like we have changelings in Ireland. Yeah. Like, have you ever heard of changelings? I have a section of on, on that in the book. No way. So you know about changelings? Well, I do because I have a section in the book on, on, um, on autism. And, wow, okay. And uh, the chapter is called Autism and the Anti-Vax Prequel mm-hmm. because so many of the the people who have been very influential in the anti-vax, COVID-vax world cut mm-hmm. their teeth um, propagating the, the, the autism vaccine myth. Okay. And, and then because the book is about doppelgangers, I was looking at the figure of the twin and the double in mythology, ah. and it brought me to the changeling okay. and this literature about how some people argue that the that changelings were early portrayals of people with autism before there was a language or understanding. Do you think that's true? Yeah. So within Irish folklore, we have changelings, which is like a fairy person. The folk belief was that fairies would come from the mirror world, the other world, and, and they would take a person that you love and put a changeling in their place. And a changeling wasn't quite human. There was something off with the changeling. So now we reckon this was, like in the 1800s, this is how people explained away things like mental illness or autism or people who might have been born deformed in some way. If you had a loved one who was experiencing issues with mental illness, they were away with the fairies. They were away with the fairies. So it's not your sister or your brother who's mentally ill. That's a changeling. The fairies have taken your relative and put this changeling in in, in their place. Also, infant mortality was very high. So if a little baby died, like it, that's a fairy baby. It's a changeling. Your baby is away in the woods with the fairies and they've put a changeling in its place. But sometimes these beliefs in, in folklore they would have real world consequences. Like in Tipperary in 1895, there was a woman called Bridget Cleary. Now by the sounds of things, Bridget Cleary might have been schizophrenic or something like that. But her husband believed that she was a a changeling, a fairy, that she'd been taken away. 
This was his genuine belief, and I think a, a local mm. priest told him to set her on fire. So he he murdered his wife, and this is 1895. It's not that long ago because he believed that she was a changeling, and that's why I sometimes view conspiracy theory as like folk beliefs. That story with Bridget Cleary reminds me of something like Pizzagate. I think in like 2016, this dude in New York went online and he believed that they were farming adrenochrome in the basement of some pizza place and then he went in there with a machine gun to try and rescue the kids. But also there's there's another side to folklore that I'd love to chat to you about, especially because of your interest in the climate. And this is just a theory that I, a thread that I pull at sometimes because of my work as as an artist and a writer, but... I think that folklore and mythology exist in the human animal to keep us in line with systems of biodiversity. And what I mean by that is, like, in Ireland, up until the 1600s, it used to be illegal to kill a white butterfly because people believed that white butterflies were the souls of dead children. Also, it would have been frowned upon to interfere with bees because bees were seen as, like, magical insects that could float over to the other world in the mist into the mirror world so people didn't fuck with bees but really what you have there are a set of beliefs and superstitions that keep humans in line with systems of biodiversity Mm -hmm. and if you look at colonial capitalism when a a culture is being colonised one of the first things to go is indigenous knowledge and folklore so that wealth can be extracted now that's that's a crazy theory from me no I agree completely because like, like humans are animals and we're animals that, that use language. And w- when I look at indigenous folklore all around the world, even like the Crow Nation people of Yellowstone National Park, like you, you know the story about how in Yellowstone Park, scientists reintroduced wolves and this healed the ecosystem in Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the ecosystem in Yellowstone National Park was collapsing. And when they reintroduced the apex predator, the wolf, the entire system reinvigorated itself. It regenerated. But if you look at the mythology of the indigenous people who live in Yellowstone, who are the Crow Nation, if you look at their origin mythology, the world comes from a wolf, from a coyote. So they knew it. Their mythology, which is thousands of years old, hinted at the answers that scientists had to find out. There's so many stories like that. And I, I just can't help but, but look at that and maybe think that there's a reason for it, that maybe... We as humans, animals who have language, that folklore and mythology allows us to view nature as something to be respected and feared and regenerated and restored rather than something that's just exploited for capital, which has gotten us into this awful situation that we're in now with climate collapse. Well, I'll be very curious um, to hear what you think about that chapter um, around the changeling. But also, you know... I. The the book has three main sections. One is the mirror world, as you said, but the 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 the, the one after that is the shadow lands, and mm. that you know, in, I'm arguing that's what none of us want to look at, okay. um, because it's it's an excavation that's going on that it where the and what are the shadow lands? Well, I, you know, the shadow. I'm using the term really broadly okay. to refer to the underbelly of mm-hmm. capitalism and colonialism and the creation of settler colonial nations like mine and you know, ma- making the argument that part of the reason why we're experiencing the kind of mass derangement that I think we are seeing and conspiracy mm-hmm. theories are one manifestation of them, but they're not the only one, okay. is because we are in this moment of kind of unveiling and unearthing um, of the the systems and the 
and the atrocities that created the modern world. Yeah. And you know, COVID, COVID was a kind of a searchlight for that, right? Because capitalism tells us that we're all just little islands only responsible to ourselves and our families, but then you have an airborne virus and it lights up all of our interconnections and you mm-hmm. have to see the people who you have unseen or or told didn't matter or, you know, you know, we're told we live in a frictionless economy, but of course we just shove all the friction into the shadows or yeah. all the people who do the labor to hold up the world. And, you know, during COVID we had to think about, we called them essential workers, but they're actually sacrificial workers. Yeah. And then, you know, the summer of 2020 comes the racial justice uprising. Um, and we're reckoning with the, the truths of white supremacy and the truths of the transatlantic slave trade. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in Canada, there was a a further kind of unveiling that happened when the unmarked graves were confirmed at the former residential, so-called Indian residential schools. Um, And it was a few months after that, that we started to see these really wild protests. Like, I I don't know if you remember the trucker convoy yeah, the trucker protest that that didn't get covered as much like Canadian stuff doesn't get covered yeah. as much as American news over here. But I was aware of the trucker protest. And again, this is something when I saw it, I thought, OK, this looks like a, a working class movement. This feels like like unions. And then I peel it back and I'm like, why the fuck are the yeah. far right? It's involved? A doppelganger. What, are, what, what are they doing here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it's a doppelganger of the kind of mass movements I've been a part of my whole life. But, you know. I would hope that a, a governing principle of the kind of movements that the left has um, you know, kick-started and sustained over the years is, is solidarity and interconnection. And really what animated those mass protests was the right to be left alone. You know, And it was a really a, a wail against the idea that we should be accountable to each other, that you, sometimes you have to do something for people who are more vulnerable. And just for the listeners and for myself too, why were those Canadian truckers protesting? Like, what did they want? Well, it wasn't just the truckers. It started, you know, they they were certainly the most um, camera um, friendly part of the coalition. But but there were also far right groups. There were also yoga moms. And, um, you know, it was that weird mix of kind of new age wholeness. yeah, it was, you know, it, some, sometimes it's called diagonalism. It's this way in which political signals are getting mixed up these days. But it what, what started it was a requirement to get vaccinated in order to cross the U.S. border. That okay. was the sort of spark. Yeah. Um, so it was part of the vaccine, um, man, the ma- vaccine mandates. And that was, you know, one of the major demands also to bring um everybody up on war crimes trials and accusing yeah. them of having the vaccines of having caused a genocide which and and so th- there's this weird kind of appropriation that goes on mm-hmm. because we were in the midst of a of, of of you know the pope came to canada to and he acknowledged that there had been a genocide of indigenous mm-hmm. people it was a big deal you know yeah and then suddenly you have all these anti-vax moms saying the real genocide okay is 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 what's going on you know to them and they actually actually made some of them made t-shirts and we're selling them online that said Canada's second genocide like the back of the COVID-19 and immediately um, hearing you speak about that the words that come to my head are blue lives matter white lives matter it's like when I hear the phrase black lives matter I, at no point do I think I'm being attacked I don't think anyone is saying to me 
that my life doesn't matter. Like, that's the other thing of this is like, as you're mentioning there, some people wanting to find a victimhood. Like if a marginalised group name their systemic oppression, some people who actually benefit from that systemic oppression, some of those people say, well, I'm a victim too. Where's my victimhood? Yeah, I think that's part of it. Um, and, but I think the deeper part of it is just how hard it is to actually be alive to the realities of our world today. I, you know, I, I think we are in a reckoning with present day um, shadowlands and, and in the ways that we've been talking about, we're in a reckoning with the mythologies of our nation states. And this is not the story of Canada that any of us grew up with or the United States, you know, or, you know, I think Ireland's a little different because there's a a deeper kind of opposition history. It's um, strange in Ireland. It's it's reversed yeah. in Ireland, Naomi. Like we, we were, so we were colonized Irish people mm-hmm. are colonized people and, and our revolutionary heroes are people who fought the British Empire and our heroes are people who not only fought against British colonization, but also had solidarity with other colonized people. And we're seeing in, in real time these revolutionary figures being reappropriated into right wing figures. Mm, wow. Like the strange thing about Ireland is, is if you call yourself like a nationalist in Ireland, to be a nationalist is is usually a dirty word. It suggests a right-wing leaning. But in Ireland, nationalist, to call yourself a nationalist, was never ever right-wing because our nationhood was something that we were trying to take back. Whereas if someone calls themselves a nationalist in in England, like Mm -hmm. English nationalism is a little bit more aligned with colonialism. We are the best and we deserve to take over cultures that we view as less than us. But now we're seeing nationalism in Ireland flipping. We're seeing groups waving Irish flags and holding up banners of like Mm -hmm. our revolutionary heroes and comparing immigration as something that's akin to how British colonial forces invaded us. And it doesn't make sense. But I don't think it matters to these people because the emotion feels right. They're reappropriating Irish nationalism to fit in with the anger they feel right now. An anger which, instead of being directed towards immigrants, should be directed towards the neoliberal policies of our government who refuse to meaningfully address the housing crisis. Yeah. I mean, all I can say is I think maybe your anti-colonial identity in Ireland saved you two years. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And now it's here. Yeah. Like, external forces have uh, appeared to have disrupted that mood. Because when you listen to Irish conspiracy people or far right people, they're just, they're saying what Tucker Carlson is saying or saying what Steve Bannon is saying in an Irish accent. Mm -hmm. The information is being spread on Facebook from the outside, usually from America. But the the reason why um, I think it's worth looking at the roots, uh, parts of the movement that has its roots in the autism vaccine myth Mm -hmm. is... You know, the extent to which so much of this movement is centered around the figure of the child, the child yeah. under attack, the yes. pure child being invaded, right, by, and, and, and you know, this is why they're outside drag shows and yeah. they're attacking teachers and librarians, but, but it's the same. The vaccine is an invasion. The mm-hmm. mask is an invasion. History is an invasion. But at, but the but the purity of the child is at the center of it, right? And that's what yeah. that's what brought me to the changeling myth because yeah. it's you know 
some of the parents who I know from you know the autism parent scene because I, my son is um, neurodivergent and okay. he you know I I don't write about him in the book but I do write about my experience with the parents um, and it's this you know this search for a cure for a safe mm. for a scapegoat the kind of abusive therapies but it's the idea that you have this pure child and then there's been like an invasion of the body snatchers okay. right and then anything you any abuse to bring the child back is justified which you know is there in the changeling stories as well mm-hmm. strange thing you're seeing too in ireland is like regarding some of the groups you mentioned there in ireland conspiracy theory people and some right-wing people some of them are quite aligned with catholic groups and you mentioned they're like trans exclusionary people you know we're defending women we're defending children and it's like you're not like in ireland we had massive massive historical abuse of children at the hands of the catholic church and it's not just an irish thing that's all the world over but in ireland we really had this in in 2014 i think it was a woman found a mass grave of the bodies of 300 children because we had an orphanage that was run by the nuns in Ireland and they just threw the kids' bodies in there. They didn't care about them, you know? And it's like, there's the thing. If you actually care about kids, if you actually care about women, there it is. We had Magdalene laundries. There's the paedophile ring. There it is. It was called the Catholic Church. It did untold damage to our country. Exactly. You know, I want to read you a little part of the the book. I want to read you this little passage from... um, it it comes from it's not it's a quote from from a guy I know he's a great writer and filmmaker his name is Julian Brave Noise Cat he's a he's an indigenous um, writer and filmmaker in the U S and Canada mm-hmm. and here listen to this I, I, I he, this was just like a long thread he did and I quoted it with permission from him he says I'm struck by the similarity of right wing conspiracy theories to actual policies towards indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. Replacement theory, manifest destiny. Okay. Right. The 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 idea the idea that that all these immigrants are coming to to replace white people. Mm-hmm. What about white people who came to replace? So that's manifest destiny. QAnon, mass institutionalized child abuse equals boarding and residential schools. Mm. Plandemic equals smallpox, alcohol, bioterrorism. It's also Freudian. The fear that it will happen to them stems from an implicit admission that they did it to others, as though the black, brown, and indigenous downtrodden are just as hateful as they are and are going to turn around and do to them what they did to us. Um, So, you know, I do wonder, is that, you know, is that part of what we're seeing? But also, I think, you know, what you said is is also a factor. You know, there's so many middle-class white women like me um, who are in this movement who seem to feel... Like, where do I fit in in in, mm. in the hierarchy of victimization? Um, do, does anyone care about about white women anymore? Well, maybe they will if I claim that by not being vaccinated, I'm a victim of mm. apartheid and genocide and slavery. And you know, you all like all the greatest crimes of the past five hundred years combined get projected onto a vaccine. Yeah. Um. So I think that that's also at play. I think there's a lot of stuff in play, and I'm trying to pick it apart. Like I, I had the word fascist angrily typed at me over the internet at the start of the pandemic because I, I thought it was a good idea that people should wear masks yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it at the time and it's like they were appropriating this language because I just think it's a good idea to wear a mask because there's a virus I mean what, what else are you going to do I didn't think I was being fascistic 
But that's so smart. That's so smart. And also, you know, the words that we would use to describe them have been rendered absurd. Um, you know, they, they, it starts to feel like 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 this is what this is the Donald Trump yeah. move. You know, he where it, whatever you say bounces off of me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What What I'd love uh, for all of this, mm-hmm. Naomi, is I'd love to develop a type of radical empathy where I could. I just want to step inside the head of somebody like Naomi Wolf and see what it's like for a day, you know? Like, to use empathy, like, even someone who believes in a flat art, you know, these people exist. I can see that the art is flat, but you you really think the art is flat and you appear to be an otherwise rational person. What is that like for you? I don't think some of these people are lying. Like, a person who, who doesn't think that coronavirus exists... And they can swat away any evidence to, to suit this narrative in their head. I don't think some of these people are lying. I think they really believe these stuff. These are regular people you see them in a coffee shop. Like, what what is going on internally? What's it like in that person's head? Yeah, and I think they're not all in the same category uh, either. I think there's, you know, I think the, the most important distinction to make is between the sort of big-time disseminators, and Wolf is one of them, um, who really know how to monetize who have built kind of an industry ar- around it and a huge name around it okay i didn't know naomi wolf was financially benefiting from this stuff too oh yeah i mean she's she she's got she's got all the platforms she's you know okay. she's selling subscriptions yeah um she's selling all kinds of things t-shirts mm-hmm. mugs i mean all of it yeah um the wolf pack oh wow uh, okay yeah so so I think there is a distinction, and, and I, be, I I also believe she believes it, mm-hmm. but I think you know she has a, a vested interest in believing it, and I think that there's a, a I think there's a very deep wound there as well. Mm-hmm. Where, and I'll come mm-hmm. back to that, but I think that you know, we have to make a distinction between the big time influencers, you know, who who are monetizing, and the people who are are really their customers, the people who 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 yeah. who who are not financially benefiting from it, but deeply believe in it. I've talked to so many people who've taught, told me about sisters and uncles and friends yeah. and their former yoga teacher and, you know, who, who, who have, you know, you know, the language of fallen down the rabbit hole and seem, seem like a changeling or altered or strange. Right. And I think it's really important to have as much empathy as we can bear. I think yeah. there were so many severed relationships during COVID because we were all so scared. That, that broke my heart. Yeah. And I mean, you know, so many families where it's like somebody who didn't get vaccinated was no longer invited to family gatherings and yes. things like that. So I really encourage people to, if they can, rebuild those relationships, extend a bridge, see if you can agree that you all hate big pharma. Mm. <laughs> you know, like there's plenty. To, yeah. <laughs> and that, that's the thing, my heart breaks because of it, Naomi, because a lot of this stuff, it, it's like we're all angry at the same shit. It's like you're, you're describing capitalism, you're describing neoliberalism, you're almost there. You're angry at the same system, but you're blaming different people. And the words that you're using are completely different to the words that I'm using. Um, you know, I, I also do think that we should hold people accountable when they make really dangerous um, decisions. You know, Wolf now takes pictures of her gun. She mm. posts pictures. You know, she is she now has a partner who is he's a he's a former special forces um, soldier, and she posts pictures of him doing target practice. She talks about civil war on the border. She mm. hangs around with Steve Bannon. So even though I can understand that, you know, she's been publicly shamed, she's been mocked, mm. that's not enough of an excuse to go hang around with fascists. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like 
I, I, I have empathy, but I also have limits. Yeah. Um, and I think she should be held accountable for the fact that a lot of people are listening to her because she used to be, you know, a trusted feminist author. And now she's leading people into the arms of real life fascists. And I see this sometimes on a, a micro level online too. If someone, if someone gets, I don't like using the word cancel, but let's just say someone gets quote tweeted and mocked by leftists online because of something they said and they're being mocked sure. and they're being made fun of. And then suddenly they go, well, fuck you then. Uh, now I'm a turf. Now I'm a racist because you were all mean to me. I'm flipping now. I'm on the other side now. And sometimes I'm a bit like, no amount of, no amount of mocking me is going to make me be a racist. It has to be there already. Or you mainly are, 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 are care about yourself. You know, I have this little mm. equation that I use to describe some of these crossover stars. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think everybody ticks all the boxes, mm. but it's narcissism slash grandiosity yeah. Plus social media addiction. These people are all just way too online. Um, plus midlife crisis. Okay. Divided because they're very worried about losing relevance. Divided by public shaming. Okay. Because um, many of them have had one of those moments, including Wolf. She's had many of them, yeah. but she had a very notorious sort of um, moment on BBC in 2019, yeah. right before the pandemic, where it was discovered she'd made these foundational errors. And then there was just a huge Twitter pile on. I remember that. Do you think that was a triggering moment for her? Well, for sure. Because the first time I heard of Naomi Wolf was she had written a book. Oh, I know what you're going to say because I know. What she, she had written a book and it was a factual error that was so great that it basically made the book entirely useless. Oh, I thought you were going to quote the Belfast tweet because that's the most famous. <laughs> the Belfast tweet where Naomi Wolf tweeted, it was amazing to go to Belfast because it doesn't have 5G yet. Everything was calm, still, peaceful yeah. and restful like the 1970s. Like Belfast in the 1970s was not calm and peaceful. Like we laughed at that in Ireland. It was hilarious. But before that, didn't Naomi Wolf? Didn't she write some book about gay people being executed in medieval England? Not medieval, but yeah, in the, um, in the 18, 1800s. And didn't she get like misinterpret what the word executed meant in, in a legal context? And um, then a journalist pointed out this error live on air and her entire thesis of her book just fell apart because of one error. Yes, I mean, you could understand why she made the error because she was looking at these at these um, court records and what it said was death recorded. Mm -hmm. So she thought that that meant that these men had been executed okay. um, long after the, the his, the, it, it was generally um, believed that there had been no more executions for sodomy and so on. Mm -hmm. And so um, she just misunderstood the term uh, and, and act actually meant that they, that they had been found guilty but released. So um, she was confronted with this live on the air on yes. BBC. It was, you know, every writer's worst nightmare. And it was very, very humiliating. Yeah. And when I say it's understandable, it's understandable that on first glance you would get it wrong, but it's not understandable that you don't fact check your work. And and <laughs> she, she experienced a, a level of public humiliation from that, which is like an academic or a writer's worst nightmare. I mean, what I remember most from that was people getting secondhand cringe with, with how awful it was that, that this had happened to her. Well, also it kind of happened to me because they all think that I'm her. <laughs> <laughs> but was that a tipping point for Naomi Wolf? Do you think so? Yeah, I think I, I think she had been, you know, she had been sort of um, dabbling in conspiracy mm -hmm. and she had made some claims where, where every few months she would sort of become a, a Twitter 
spectacle. Yeah. You know, and she said she's like the Belfast tweet was actually before that. Oh, or okay. she would claim that like ISIS beheadings were perhaps crisis actors and those people mm -hmm. hadn't actually been killed. And you know, yeah. that's a serious thing to do if you have got a few hundred thousand followers yeah. because those people have families, they're real yeah. people. You should actually not share that unless you have evidence. I mean, this is, comes back to what we were talking about before. It's the difference between a conspiracy theory and actual conspiracies that yes. happen in the world that we should pay attention to. And the difference is basically proof. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah. The other question to Naomi, and not necessarily about Naomi Wolf, but like I've been to college and I studied, studied at a master's level and I, so I know what evidence looks like, but some people mm -hmm. don't. And I've made the mistake in the past of arguing online with people who might be anti-vax or flat earth or whatever. And sometimes they send me their evidence. Mm -hmm. And when I look at the evidence, I can clearly see mm -hmm. this is a fake website. I know it says CNN at the top, but it's, it's actually a mm -hmm. fake website. And I know what a reliable source looks like because I had the benefit of studying yeah. that oh, in absolutely. college. But to some, some of these people, this is their evidence because they don't have access to tools that I have. And, and this is where the distinction is. Yeah, yeah. Mm. The, the distinction between the people who are falling for it and the people who are really disseminating, disseminating it. Disseminating, um, yeah. But yeah, I think it, a lot of this comes, comes back to... to Th this broad and correct sense that so many people have that that there are elites who are conspiring against them who do not have their best interests at heart and they're trying to understand why if they are working really hard they can't afford groceries or rent um let alone a mortgage and they believed what they learned in school about yeah. how capitalism was a meritocracy and if you worked hard you were going to be rewarded um, and now they're trying to make sense of it because the system really is crashing. And this is why we're in a really dangerous moment. Um, I think we're in a moment that's akin to the 1930s where uh. the center is not holding um, and we are in a, um, it's, it, it's, it's up for grabs whether, whether this huge amount of public anger is going to tip right or left. Yeah. And right now the, the right seems to have an upper hand, which is why it matters if they're appropriating words and yes. targets that are generally left-wing. Um, and you know what I argue in the book is they're really only able to appropriate what we leave unattended, right? If, mm. we, if we don't have a campaign about how the vaccines should never have been patented in the first place and these companies should never have been allowed to profiteer off of human misery for yeah. all of these years and that COVID should never have been a profit center in the first place and why were these patents in place when the vaccines were developed with public money. Of course. And all the money is made by our governments buying the vaccines. And why were we being offered our fourth and fifth shot when most people on the planet had not even had one? Mm. Um, you know, the left was not fighting that fight. And the, the vac we were telling people to roll up their sleeves and get vaccinated, which is part of what we should have been doing, but not all of it, right? Mm -hmm. And I, you know, politics hates a vacuum, and I think the right is filling in, and that's what makes me frantic. Is is I I feel like the left is falling apart when it's needed most. I could chat to you for hours, Naomi, but I have one last question. When it comes to conspiracy theories, if you follow the money, who benefits from conspiracy theories? Well. You know, there's. I think there's the there's the small time benefit beneficiaries. You know, the people who monetize on their Rumble sites and. Yeah. Um, 
But that's not the big picture. The big picture is, you know, why is Elon Musk a conspiracy yeah. uh, influencer? Why, why is Rupert Murdoch writing a letter to to the to the to the staff of News Corps telling them to keep fighting the elites? Yes. You know, um, this this is the, the irony of it is that even though all the language of anti-establishment, anti-elite, anti-big tech, anti-big pharma <laughs> is now in the right wing cr- conspiracy land. Yeah. It's actually an incredible way of protecting existing elite structures because it's a it's a distraction machine. Okay, you know, you're, you're you're looking for the plot to prove that the election was stolen or that the kids are being kidnapped for their adrenochrome instead of the myriad scandals that are right in front of our eyes that we can prove. You think back to the 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 the, the kind of grassroots left organizing that was. The, the image of the pamphleteer is sort of much derided, but Democratized it's because language. They, yeah, they were speaking in the vernacular. You know, they were. It, it was not something that was ivory towers about reaching everyday people in the language that resonated with their lives. And you know, that's why it matters that we not be jargon laden and yes. um, you know, just impressing each other with how many isms we can load our language down with. And yeah. Thank you so much, Naomi, for that chat. I could have chatted you for hours. I know you're mad busy. Um, just thank you for your time and best of luck with the book tour. Oh, it's so fun to talk with you. I'm a real fan. Thank, thank you. you. Mind yourself. God bless. Thank you, Naomi Klein, for taking the time out to come onto this podcast. That was a most magnificent chat. I'm really pinching myself that I got Naomi Klein on the fucking podcast as a guest. I never thought I'd be able to say those words. I hope all of you enjoyed that conversation and that you took something from it. Check out Naomi's books. Not just Doppelganger, but something like Shock Doctrine is essential reading. I'll catch you next week. Rub a dog. Wink at a swan. Feed a hedgehog if they come to your back door. It's hedgehog feeding at the back door season, isn't it? My throat is better this week, as you can tell. It's about 95% still a little bit weird but by next week it'll be 100% clear I'll have some delicious hot takes and I think my sore throat is sufficiently cured that I can leave you with some kisses this week and not hug the microphone like a lunatic dog bless even though that freaks some people out Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 